This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. State. Uh, we, we have no idea. He could still be here. He could be back in Los Angeles. He could be anywhere in the country or really outside the country. So right now, until someone comes in and identifies him and we're able to pin him down, uh, we want our citizens to be aware that he could be around the next corner. Uh, but I also want, you know, Los Angeles. I want those yeah. people in that neighborhood to know he could be back there or, yeah. or, again, anywhere in between. Sheriff Gaylor, thank you so much for taking the time. Keep up the good work, and hopefully we have a successful resolution. Thanks, everybody. Ashley Banfield is picking up this story in just moments with an exclusive interview. Rachel Morin's sister joins Ashley live. And that does it for us tonight. Banfield starts right now. everybody. Welcome to the program. So nice to have you here with us tonight. Uh, it is Monday and we are coming to a close of this uh, whole August summer month. So we're going to kick off this week with a bang, a big exclusive report. If you follow serial killers, I kind of have the mother of all stories for you tonight. Um, and it wasn't one that I knew existed until a couple conversations that I had this weekend that sort of uh, left my jaw on the floor, shall I say. Dennis Rader, took a whole bunch of pictures of himself reenacting his kills. I am not kidding. Dennis Rader put on makeup and wigs and masks and bound himself in the same way that he killed his victims and photographed himself in this manner. That may be something you had heard about before. There had been some discussion of it 20 years ago. What we did not know, and we know tonight exclusively, is that police are now using those photos as investigative tools to solve current cold cases. Cases that aren't ascribed to this killer. New cases that could be solved based on information in the photos. Now, I have to warn you, the photos are really upsetting. I'm going to get to them in a minute, but not before I give you a gazillion warnings. If you have children, they may not see this, please. If you are squeamish, if you uh, are triggered, these are not photos you should see. Even though they're reenactments and they're Dennis Rader, they really do look like murdered victims. And so I just want you to be really careful on how you consume this program tonight and who is in the room with you. Big, big warning. Blink, blink, blink. Okay, It's coming up shortly, just a couple of minutes. So you have time to clear the kids. Put them to bed, please. Um, so that's coming up. But also, we're going to talk to the detectives who have been working on one of the cold cases that might be linked, that might have information in these photos. And we're also going to talk to the sheriff who was behind that dig that actually produced some of the evidence that we're now realizing are likely tied to victims. So we're going to get their take on what these photos show, specific pieces of the photos, what's in the photos that is of interest, that might prove out how other people died and who other people were who died and whether they're tied to Dennis Rader. That's coming up. And then also, you know, you guys know all too well because you know your true crime. You know that serial killers use a lot of codes. You know, like the Zodiac killer was always speaking in code. They had to have code breakers, actually, for his letters. It turns out BTK, Dennis Rader, was 
doing a lot of coding himself in his journals, in a book, manuscript that he was writing before he was arrested, whatever. Um, he used a lot of these codes and we are now deciphering the codes. We've got a couple of those codes and how those codes now are leading to the possibility of solving new cold cases. I know it's weird to say new cold cases, but they are new cases that aren't connected to him yet. All right. And then this is upsetting. You know, Rachel Morin, um, her killer is still out there. And you heard Jesse Weber speaking on Dan Abrams Live earlier about how difficult this has been to find this killer, how the sheriff now says he's going to kill again. He's going to kill again. And he's on the way to becoming a serial killer. This is the man they're looking for. Who he is, we don't know yet. And I stress yet. But we have an exclusive interview tonight with Rachel Marin's sister. Um, the weekend after, uh, after the weekend where they laid her to rest. And how they feel about the investigation and what they may know that we don't know. All right, let's begin with the uh, bind torture uh, kill. BTK, the serial killer who murdered his way through at least 10 victims, the ones he'll admit to, before being caught in 2005 and put away for life. Uh, now it turns out there are a lot of photos that he took of himself um, bound in the same ways that he left his victims. These were, these were trophies and prizes for himself to relive his murders after they were long over. He would actually put himself in his victim's lingerie he would use some of their personal items and he would actually recreate whether they were hanging upside down or whether they were bound and gagged and blindfolded or whether they were tied up or whether they were half buried. He reenacted all of this. So big warning. Here is your biggest warning. I gave you one before. You've had plenty of time. Please get the kids out of the room. I'm going to show you Dennis Rader's photos of him reenacting his murders. There it is. I can't be any more clear to you about how graphic and upsetting these pictures are. This is one of them, where he half buried himself. This is another one, where he had a wig and weird makeup and lingerie of his kills. This is another one, bound uh, after extensive torture and buried. This is one, let's try and get that banner down, okay. This is one hanging upside down. This is another one hanging from a tree. Again, these are all Dennis Rader himself in these photos. And there's some interesting clues in these photos. So interesting, in fact, that these old photos of Dennis Raiders are now being used to yield clues to solve cold cases that they think might be actually tied to him. So again, I need to reiterate, if you're just tuning in, these are not the victims. These are Dennis Rader reenacting what he did to his victims using some of their personal effects, their clothing, and some of the items that he may have actually had with him when um, they were killed. There are three cases that these photos might actually pertain to, might actually have evidence to link to Dennis Rader. One is Shauna Garber, 22 years old. She was found near Pineville, Missouri, killed December 1990. Okay, uh, she'd been actually she was likely killed in October, found in December of 1990 found sexually assaulted and restrained. A half dozen different bindings were on her. Uh, there's another case, a cold case, in Oklahoma that's unsolved. 
the photos may pertain to that case as well. And then there's a third case that's being investigated regarding those photos, and that is a missing woman from Hayes, Kansas, who went missing in 1983. Uh, these are cases we had not heard of before now. I want to bring in Osage County, um, Oklahoma Sheriff Eddie Verdon, who's been working on the dig that we brought to you last week that yielded a lot of evidence. Sheriff, I am so fascinated by this new aspect of this investigation. Look, it's new to us. I know it's not new to you. But can you give me a bit of an indication of what is in these photos that is informative to you while looking at these cold cases? Yes. Well, of, of course, when we started digging through the files, we uh, we located those Polaroids that he had taken himself. And there was a series of nine photos that he took on one of his convicted uh, cases out of Wichita. And in, in the series of nine, he has written that he is wearing articles from three different projects, one of them of which was was the Davis murder there in, in Wichita. And then he named two other projects that, that some of that clothing was from. And as we went further into that, then we developed or found or located nine more photographs that were dated shortly after another project that he had marked in October uh, which he called Mossy Lake, which we believe is, is possibly related to, to the Garber case. And I just want to be clear for our viewers who didn't see our programs uh, last week. It's become clear that Dennis Rader uses the word project for his murders. And he uses codes, which we'll get into a little bit later, for um, confirmed kills and and projects in his writings. But when you talk about a project, I know that there was um, something called Project Dogside. I think that was Doris Davis killed in January of 1991. Did you believe that there were items of, of clothing depicted in the reenactment pictures of Doris uh, Davis and, and her murder? Again, I can't say there were kills, but he noted specifically three projects, one of them being what he called Dogside, and then another one he called Project Prairie, and another one, I believe, was Project Cat. So he noted that he used those articles in those photographs. So then when we found a series of nine more that were dated within within days of what they believe Garber or when Garber was killed, uh, we started looking at the items that he was wearing in that and matched that those items back to a special map that he mailed to law enforcement back at the time uh, where he marked it as 160 and then marked a, a spot on that map for a location for the victim's body to be placed in the woods. And in those photographs, uh, we, had, we had been looking at another unsolved case in Oklahoma and that victim was missing four different items uh, that they were last seen with. Uh, one of them was a red blanket. One was a black blouse. And in those photographs, those there there's a red blanket that appears in one of those pictures and a black blouse. And then in a couple of the evidence photographs taken when they served a warrant 2005, there's a blue suitcase that matches the description 
uh, of the one that victim was last seen with, and then also a purse that matches a description. And again, those are just descriptions in the original report from 1990. But if you go to the timeline that he had or the notebook where he had those, he has a note in there for, for an Oklahoma case. He's got an Oklahoma kidnapping. And then for the uh, the time period when the Oklahoma victim was last seen, he's got a notation of a project. Uh, and then when you find, you know, four items that match the description in that report, you've got to really look deeper into that. So to be clear, the, the Hayes, Kansas victim, um, is it is it true you, you, you found information that he was watching a location where she worked and that he purchased a mask near where she worked? Yes, and, and, his, and some of his other notations, he, he makes mention of a location that she had, had worked at from the information we received uh, and then other indications of, of him digging a grave along the river somewhere in that area. So again, you know, we, we can only say what, what we found and what it leads us to believe and the investigation is going to continue. Is there some kind of sensitivity behind not releasing the names of the um, Hayes, Kansas victim and the Oklahoma victim? You know, absolutely. Those, those cases are not our jurisdiction and not our cases. So, you know, I'll, I'll leave that up to the agencies that are, are working those cases. We've provided those agencies the information that we feel pertains to their cases and, of course, are willing to help anyway at any request but but again that's that's going to be their decision uh, you know on where on where they go and what they do with the investigation we're just providing them the information that we put together through our investigation that we feel like could relate to their Sheriff, let me ask you, we talked last week about the dig um, at Dennis Rader's former home and what it yielded, the binding devices you showed us, the the pantyhose with the knots in them that he would have used as a ligature. Uh, You mentioned there was jewelry and hobby items and other things like perhaps chains, other binding devices. Are you further along today than when we spoke last week in finding evidentiary value from those from those pieces of evidence that link to Dennis Rader? Well, we, we we're looking into several different things, but as far as finding the exact owner of those items, of course, you know, I don't know if we'll ever get the answer to that. Dennis is the only one that truly knows where he got those items and what they came from. But what we're trying to do is, is find cases where similar items were, were possibly reported uh, belonging to the victim or, or something related to the victim or that case that could have been. And then, of course, open that, that you know, maybe some of these items might yield some DNA or, or something. And, and again, you know, the, the length of time they were in the ground, I can't tell you whether it's going to retain anything or not, but uh, we're certainly going to look at it very close. Again, we're also working, trying to get a list of the items that were collected in the original search warrant back in 05 to see if any DNA testing was done on them, and if not, trying to you know move forward to get DNA testing on on any of the bindings or or clothing or anything that was collected at that time that hasn't been off and hadn't checked to see if it matches to any of these other victims that we're looking at. Sheriff Verdon, I hope that um, you find resolution on these cold cases for these families and also for your officers. You've been working a long time on it. Uh, Stay in touch with us, please. We're going to stay on the story. Absolutely. Thank you.
Sheriff Eddie Verdon joining us tonight live. And now I'm joined by Detectives Lori Howard and Rhonda Wise. They work together on Shauna Garber's case. They worked for 17 years, both recently sitting down face to face with Dennis Rader, the BTK killer. Um, listen, uh, uh, Detective Howard, you heard the interview that I just had with the sheriff. I'm curious about your thoughts regarding those photos and whether they yield any evidentiary value to, to digging in to the case that, you know, you've been you know, doggedly pursuing the case of Shauna Garber. Do you see any resolution there, any value? I do. I do see value. It would be hard not to look at them and think, uh, where did the clothing come from? Where did the bindings come from? Where was it taken? What does the notations mean? They are gruesome, but they are a tool and they are important. So Detective um, Wise, talk to me a little bit about the timeline because... I'm doing the math and trying to, you know, look at these in real time. You've had a chance to really digest the timeline of Shauna Garber's murder and the timeline of the um, the murders that the photo purports to represent. And as the sheriff mentioned, there are two other victims um, that those photos actually partially depict. We we look back at everything and Shauna was what we believe to be murdered in around Halloween of 1990. Um, She was found in December of 1990. Um, There are some questions with the timeline as if Brader would have been in the area, but we are definitely looking into that to see if we can pinpoint it down to determine if he was definitively in the area or not. Can I can I ask if it is looking promising um, at this point, Detective Howard, is it looking promising that the pieces are coming together, whether it's the photographs and what they may now look to yield compared to the the items that were unearthed at Raiders home, whether there's some linking together with those items and the photographs and with anything that that Dennis Raider may have said to you in your face-to-face interviews? Well, Dennis is an interesting character. Um, We asked him, of course, specifically about our case and about Shauna, and he denied um, ever being in our area. He stated by that time he had finished with one job, was, had no reason to be in our area, and therefore he claims that he had nothing to do with our case. Detective Wise, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I I walked over with the last thing you said. Can you repeat that? A lot of things that Dennis Rader says you have to take with a grain of salt. Understandable, yeah. We have no direct evidence putting him in our area, which which is key. But we also have nothing in the way of the Polaroids that we can say definitively are belong, that they belong to Sean. So we're just taking this one piece at a time. Do I think the Polaroids are important? Absolutely. Could it be for somebody else's family, somebody else's victim? Absolutely. Those are the things that I think you have to piece together. We're fairly certain at this point that they, we can't say conclusively that they belong to Sean. Yeah, understand. And let's hope that the, the puzzle pieces start to really come together um, for your sake and then for the families, all the families uh, who are involved. Um, Detective-wise, I always think that a serial killer, once he's caught, 
um, and there are she's, but not very many, so I'll say he, a serial killer once he's caught and imprisoned for life or sentenced to death doesn't have much to lose. Why wouldn't a serial killer like Dennis Rader want to take more credit for his kills since he seemed to really relish in writing about them and celebrating them with law enforcement and taunting the public and law enforcement? What would hold him back from just saying, that was me, those are mine? You know, in in speaking with Dennis, I didn't get the impression from him that he wanted to take credit for anything that wasn't his. Um, he actually told us right out that he would really, he really wants to help find closure for the families if he can. Mm. But he could take credit for it. But shortly after he did, they would find, they would soon find out that it would, that it would be false. And that the people that he confessed to would just have to live with that. And then somehow maybe his credibility would be shot. But credibility in serial killer is like an oxymoron. It's it's sort of astounding that the work and the business that you guys are in. And God bless you for doing it. Detectives Lori Howard and and Rhonda Wise, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your dogged work. And let's um, let's pray that we're going to have another interview soon uh, where there's some solutions and resolutions. Absolutely. Good to have you both. I really appreciate it. So coming up, when it comes to serial killers, it is not uncommon, as I mentioned before, that they are cryptic and they use codes to notate their kills. And as it turns out, BTK was no different. There's new information that's emerged about BTK's code writing in his journals and in his manuscript for his special book that, I don't know, he was going to release if he was caught because they found the book before he was caught, right? So this is actually possibly lining up with some new victims, though. These codes that he wrote about. Victims that are new, but that are really cold cases. So when we come back, the meanings behind PJ and C9. And if BTK's kill list is about to get longer. Plus, a shocking warning from the sheriff investigating Rachel Morin's murder. He says the suspect could be a serial killer. Or, if he isn't, could become one soon. Tonight, Rachel Morin's sister, Rebecca, joins me live for an exclusive interview. We're back in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So we've been talking a lot about um, Dennis Rader and the way he sort of prosecuted his murderous life, right? He would kill people and then write about it. He would write journals and then he'd write a manuscript for a book. And this is all before he was caught. Don't ask me why a serial killer would be writing the manuscript before you're caught, because it's kind of like if they search your house, they have the evidence, they have your confessions, but he did. And so today, like 20 years later, we're now looking at his journal entries and we're comparing them to his manuscript for the book that they actually seized from his home when they arrested him in 05. And we're comparing those to some of the murders that haven't yet been solved, like Cynthia Dawn Kinney. 
because there was a 1976 journal entry that sure did seem to match what happened to this young 16-year-old cheerleader who was snatched while leaving her parents' laundromat in Pawhusky, Oklahoma. Raider lived about two hours away. It's still not a case that is linked to Raider, but the investigators sure think this is him, right? Because check this out. It's confirmed now that Raider, as you just heard, um, called his kill plans projects, right? He had these codes that he would use in his journal and in his manuscript. And the codes were um, PJ was project and C dash number was confirmed kill. So take a look at this one. This is a project called Bad Wash Day in 1976, same year that Cynthia Dawn Kinney disappeared. It says PJ dash 17th, number one, hut, 70 dash F. 1976, at B.E. of the house off 17th. Had problem getting in or too much noise factor. The brunette was the target. I would watch the nearby laundromat for possible victim. C, C9. Hit, PJ, bad wash day. Laundromat were a good place to watch victims in dreams. Sometimes I have a pair of women underwear on. And after watching a girl or lady relieve myself in bathroom with masturbation thoughts. So C9 is what he would refer to um, as a confirmed kill nine. But he also referred to a chapter. He would actually refer to chapters in his unpublished manuscript. And Bad Wash Day was an actual chapter. So his journal links to his manuscript in the bad wash day, the laundromat, 1976. I would watch, watch to see. All of that seems to really line up with Cynthia Dawn Kinney's disappearance. He also, on the same journal page, happened to mention, quote, out of town until things cool down. I want to bring in Scott Bond. Dr. Bond is a criminologist, a professor, and the author of Why We Love Serial Killers. Okay, Dr. Bond. First question, and I, I sort of can't get this one out of my head. Why would someone who was so meticulous at hiding his life from his family, his children, his church where he was a deacon, the Boy Scouts where he was a leader, his job as a park ranger-ish kind of character, why would someone like that be writing a book and manuscript detailing all of his kills well before he was ever caught? Great question, and it's very difficult for the layman to understand, but Dennis Rader is a complete psychopath and what's known as a malignant narcissist. And you may be aware, Ashley, I corresponded with this man extensively for four years while I was writing my my book. And I got inside of his mind very deeply, and let me tell you, it's a scary place. Everything is a game. Everything is manipulation. Nothing is what it seems. He wanted to chronicle his life. He wanted movies made about him. He wanted books written to be about him. I was a tenured university professor at the time that I was doing the bulk of my correspondence with him. And he suggested that upon his death, we open a wing in our library for all of his artifacts so the world could see them uh, in our library. This is a man who knows no bounds in his narcissism. What about the use of the codes, the, the C-number, um, the PJ projects? What does it say about 
this kind of a killer who would label his murders as projects? Well, it's an attempt to dehumanize. It's what we call, um, uh, it's a technique of neutralization. Rather than um, call them humans, rather than call them victims, they were projects to him, almost like he was collecting butterflies or putting together model airplanes. Ted Bundy actually called his victims objects. So this is a very common thing that serial killers will attempt to dehumanize and objectify their, their, um, their victims. But with Raider, as as I said, everything has to be a game. He used codes in our correspondence, in, in our letters. I would have to decipher them in order to, to make sense of them. It's all part of his control game. He wants to be the master. He wants to be in control. And this is what gives him satisfaction. If you think about it, actually, he is confined now to an eight by 10 space, 23 hours a day. He has nothing left except his little games. And that's why he tries to interject himself in other cases cases like Brian Koberger, like the Long Island serial killer. It's all he has left. So he is enjoying this, relishing this. And in my estimation, Ashley, he is not going to give anything up until it is shown to him that they absolutely have the evidence that he committed one or more of these cold cases. And then he will give it up and he'll jump on the stage and he will claim credit and and, uh, tell the world what a genius he is. But he won't give anything up until it's satisfactorily proven to him so that um, he can say, uh, yes, you got me. So incredibly twisted, but we knew that. Um, I guess the only solace we have in the description you just gave us is that he's withering away, and in the words of his own daughter, rotting, literally rotting into a shell of what he um, used to be. Dr. Bond, thank you so much. Um, Scott Bond, uh, will you come back again? Because we're, uh, I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg with what they have discovered in that dig and what they're finding in those pictures. We'd love to have you back. Absolutely. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you so much. Why We Love Serial Killers, Dr. Scott Bond's book. All right, coming up. Uh, There is so much evidence in Rachel Morin's murder investigation. There's DNA, there's video of a possible killer, but still there's no idea of who that suspect actually is. And this must be just incredibly frustrating for Rachel's family. Uh, Rachel Morin's sister, Rebecca, is going to be live with me next for her first ever interview. Back in a moment. Sheriff Gaylor says, um, well... He will kill again. He will kill again if we don't catch him. And he could end up becoming a serial killer. This is what Sheriff Gaylor added. I have no doubt in my mind if he's not apprehended, he will become a serial killer because he will do this again. This being the murder of Rachel Morin. You know, um, they released video on August 17th of the person they believe killed Rachel. And they know that because the DNA at Rachel's murder scene matches the DNA at a home invasion in Los Angeles. And this was the home invasion. This is him leaving. Take a good look. I can't show this enough. Take a good look at the way he walks, the gait, the shape of his jeans, the shape of his feet, the shape of his shoulders, the haircut that he had on August 17th. That's the guy. That's the killer right there. Still trying to find him, though. We don't know who he is. 5'9", 230 pounds, 20 to 30 pounds, likely Hispanic. That is all we know so far. Could be local to California. Could be local to Maryland. May have committed crimes in other states. Investigators from Maryland have gone to California and are sharing information between those jurisdictions. There's a $10,000 reward now that they released um, 
in, on Thursday last week. Sheriff says we're one tip away from catching him. One tip away. Could be you. I'm joined now exclusively by Rachel Marin's sister, Rebecca Marin, and the family's attorney, Randolph Rice. Rebecca, thank you so much for being with us tonight. First and foremost, I am so sorry for your loss. I'm so sorry for what you and your family have had to go through. Have the police shared anything with you? Have they told you anything that sounds promising? Uh, Nothing more than what everybody else already knows. We're just waiting for that one person to come forward and say they recognize him. But um, so far, nobody has done that that I know of. And is this extraordinarily frustrating? Do you feel you're getting everything you need from the investigators? Uh, That I can't really answer um, because, you know, like I said, I mean, there's only so much they can do. Somebody needs to come forward. Somebody has to say something. Um, Sorry. Um, I understand. Well, we'll show the pictures again. Um, That's the man that they're looking for. If you're watching right now, take a very close look at everything about him, the way he walks. Sometimes it's the way a suspect walks that is the tip that comes in, not necessarily the description of the person, but the way they walk. And hopefully, Rebecca, that will be something that someone recognizes. How are Rachel's kids doing? She's a mother of five. How are the kids as can be expected, um, sad, angry, don't really understand. Um, they really love their mother. Uh, you know, they pray for her to come back. So it's been really hard on all of them. What have you been able to share with them? What have you told them? They know that she's gone. We haven't given them any details um, except for the older ones. Um, we plan on keeping like that for a little while till they're old enough to understand, and hopefully it won't be too much longer before they have the person that did this. That is our that is what we want the most because you know, like like the sheriff said, this guy is going to do it again. It could be, you know, your sister, your mother, your daughter. And that's what people don't get. I don't understand why no one's come forward. To me, it's obvious that somebody recognizes this guy. They have to. It's like I could see him move and know, you know, if this was somebody I knew, I would know who it was. So I'm really hoping that somebody comes forward soon. Somebody is brave enough to do that, to do what's right. We'll continue to show the pictures that the um, sheriff's released of him leaving the scene of that home invasion where a young girl was assaulted. And as we show the pictures, just remember, just look at every part of it, every detail, the the small of his back, the curve of his shoulders, the the slouch that he has, that haircut from August 17th. Again, that's that's a haircut from a couple of weeks ago. That could have grown in by now. Um, The tightness of his jeans, that's a style that some people wear and a lot of other people don't wear. Uh, Everything about that, holding the clothing that he's walking out of the house. Um, Rebecca, who's looking after Rachel's kids? Uh, They are with their fathers. So they're well looked after at this time and you're able to to see them and they're able to get the counseling they need? Yes. 
Randolph, can I ask you about the evidence? As a lawyer, um, you understand how difficult it is for police, A, to process evidence, then B, to share it publicly before you have an actual trial in, trial in process, right? You don't want right. to jeopardize any kind of possible um, criminal procedure down the line if they can catch this person. That's but at right. the same, But at the same time, I'm curious about genealogy. If you have DNA... There is a remarkable way to trace people who aren't in CODIS, people who haven't maybe committed crimes that are on the record before. Maybe they've committed them. They just haven't been caught in process before. But there's genealogy. It's how we caught the Golden State Killer. It's how so many killers are caught these days. Do you know if that's the avenue that authorities are using? Well, first of all, let me just thank you for having both of us on. Um, This is really important because the more that this story is out there, uh, the more people see that video that hopefully somebody sees and recognizes this individual. And going to the evidence, yes, this is something that I'm sure the state police and the FBI, they're going to use that DNA evidence. They're going to check it with other databases. You know, we've had conversations about 23andMe or maybe using an Ancestry.com type of thing where they go and try to find maybe a relative uh, that has some sort of associated DNA. And hopefully that gives the investigators a link that will lead them to this individual. Yeah, and even the companies uh, that don't um, subscribe to the police being able to access all their databases, they do give their customers the option to check a box to say, do you want to be part of a pool um, that can search, you know, for, uh, you know, search for potential criminality? And there are other bodies of information available as well. It's how they can do it. It's how they can do this regularly now using genealogy. Um, And Rebecca, I hope that that is something that they end up using because it's remarkable how extensive it it can be all over the world. So it really can help catch people. I do want to ask you about your GoFundMe because I know that you've been raising money to help these five kids. I mean, five kids without a mom. Tell me about the GoFundMe. Um, Well, unfortunately, I do have experience setting one up. (laughs) And I hadn't even thought of it the day I set it up. I had other family members come to me and suggest I get one going uh, before someone else took advantage of the situation and ripped people off. I was quite surprised by how many people donated. And, you know, it wasn't just that. There have been other donations to help with things along the way. So I can honestly say the majority of that money that was raised on the GoFundMe is going to the kids. Well, and we'll also um, just make mention, we, we just showed the picture right there. So if anybody's searching for the GoFundMe, this is the legitimate one. It's called the Rachel Morin Funeral and Memorial Fund. Um, I know what you're saying. There are some pretty bad actors out there who take advantage of situations like this, but that's the legitimate one that um, Rebecca's family has set up. And uh, to the both of you, I'm just going to put up on our screen, anybody who's watching right now, if you think you recognize that man, if you know anything, if you have any tip, and just like they say in the movies, no tip is too small, send your tips to the Harford County Sheriff's Office. You can also call 410-836-7788. Take a screen grab of your screen right now. Take a screen grab of your TV. Uh, you've got the email there and you've got the phone number and, you know, tipsters can remain anonymous. That's the most important thing. If you're too afraid to say something, uh, don't be. It will not affect you. ICE will not come to get you if you are a citizen or you're not a legal citizen of this country. If you're not legally here, but you have information, you can call those numbers. You can email and you can still be safe. I, I Again, 
want to say, Rebecca, how sorry I am about what you're having to go through. And I'm thanking you profusely uh, for coming on and sharing this with our audience tonight. And we'll pray that we all have a better uh, resolution to report soon. Thank you, Randolph Rice, as well. We appreciate both of you being on. Thank you, Ashley. You're so welcome. Coming up, it is often said that the families of serial killers are also victims of those criminals and their sordid behavior. And now we're learning that the family pets can also be victims of serial killers, as in the case of the Long Island serial killer suspect. Guess what happened to his family cats? We have an update next. There is um, this thing about serial killers. Uh, when they hide their uh, behavior from their families and then the families find out, the families are destroyed. I mean, imagine. Imagine going through what BTK's daughter went through and wife. And just imagine the duplicitous life that your father has lived and then left you in the gutter. And you know, the public doesn't tend to be that sympathetic to the families of serial killers. And that sort of happened with this Long Island serial killer suspect, Rex Hewerman. Um, people haven't been too friendly to his wife and two kids, adult kids. They had their world upside down, like totally thrown into the tailspin. The house was torn apart for evidence. They came back and it was like the plumbing wasn't even working, right? And then there's this. Their cats were gone. Their family cats, two of them. Family friend says that police trapped the cats and turned the cats into a shelter. Problem is, it was a kill shelter. Eek. It's a shelter that euthanizes its animals. Eek. So here's the thing. Uh, the friend of the family was a person named Melissa Moore, and if that name is familiar, Melissa is the daughter of the notorious Happy Face serial killer. So she is helping the Hewerman family navigate the hell that they're in right now because she has gone through this hell with her father being the happy face killer. And she was the one who actually helped to find the cats and the kill shelter. And I have some good news out of this really awful story. And that is that the cats are okay. They were not euthanized, thank God. There's no comment right now from the Suffolk County Police Department of how those cats ended up, you know, trapped and sent to a kill shelter, but at least this family um, has the cats back. Just, you know, one insult after another. And I should let you know as well, we got some house cleaning for you here on the Long Island serial killer suspect. Rex Hurman is expected in court again on September the 27th. And as we continue to follow that story, we will continue to follow those court hearings. So make sure you stay tuned here uh, and we'll update you. Still to come, do you ever stop to think that the problem might actually be you? The woman who's awaiting trial for killing her boyfriend by zipping him into a suitcase till he suffocated? Uh, she has chased off yet another lawyer, and if you have been counting, it's kind of a parlor game, she's at number five, lawyer number five. This latest one telling the judge, nope, I can't do this, I'm out of here. Guess what else he told the judge about his client, Sarah Boone? whose murder trial is just weeks away. Here's a hint for you. It rhymes with shellfish. More next. So I'd be pretty nervous if my murder trial was in a month and like a whole parade of defense lawyers all said, sayonara, you're on your own. Do you remember Sarah Boone, the suitcase murder suspect, about to go on trial for zipping her boyfriend into the suitcase and then just taunting him 
on camera while he struggled to breathe and slowly suffocated. By morning, by the way, he was dead. This happened February 2020. Her second-degree murder trial set to start in October, actually October 2nd, which was Brian Koberger's date before it was delayed. But Sarah Boone's problem isn't the wheels of justice. It is her defense attorneys. They keep on jumping ship. Her fifth one, fifth court-appointed lawyer, just filed a motion last week asking to be cut loose from Sarah and her case, telling the judge that he and his client have irreconcilable differences. Um, The attorney actually said that Boone should be representing herself, and he actually said because no attorney can satisfy her. Those were his words. Says her demands on his time have been unreasonable. She says, ah, I haven't even been able to confer with my lawyers, and my trial's weeks away. But there's no word on whether the judge is going to grant the motion or if the trial date will be affected. Watch this space and watch Cuomo because he's coming up next. I'll see you tomorrow.